0: The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number six, first issue special, part one. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Harris, and in this episode, I will be joined by Classic Comics Forum member Cody Starbuck for the first part of our two part discussion of the infamous DC Bronze Age tryout book, First Issue Special. Running for 13 issues from the beginning of 1975 through the beginning of 1976, First Issue Special presented a unique concept where every issue of the series was the first issue of a brand new feature. Of course, Almost none of those features actually ever had a second issue or even a second appearance, leading me to wonder whether the book was even intended as a tryout series, or if there was some sort of ulterior motive by publisher Carmen Infantino for creating the book in the first place. In our first episode, Cody Starbuck and I will be discussing the first seven issues of First Issue Special, as well as, as always question and answer session where we delve into Cody Starbucks collecting and reading history as a comic book fan. Now before we get to that, I do wanna mention that we had some audio issues with this episode Unfortunately, we've lost the first couple minutes of that question and answer session with Cody Starbuck. We're going to start two or three questions into it. There's also a bit of a background uh, humming or rattling noise throughout the episode. Hopefully it won't be too distracting. I apologize for that. Unfortunately, there was nothing we could do uh, to correct that situation, but it's not too intrusive, and I hope you're able to enjoy the podcast anyway. So we're going to join the conversation in progress. Cody Starbuck has already revealed to me that the first comic he read was an issue of Supergoof, and that the most recent comics he read were the acclaimed Vietnam Journal by Don Lomax. And as we join in progress, he's in the process of explaining to me why his choice for this perfect desert island read is the Manhunter series by Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson. Enjoy.
1: I remember seeing the the, the little heads that they had on those detective covers and seeing this Manhunter and thinking, who the heck is this guy? And I didn't actually see an actual issue of that till I was in college and found my first comic shop and was just digging around and saw they had some of those dollar comics and a friend had one or two so I thought those were cool so I just kind of grabbed them one of them had the man one of the Manhunter chapters in it and that just kind of cemented it and then I found the collected edition well a few months to about a year
0: later so what creator do you think is underrated oh
1: boy um there's a few I could probably name. Um, one is Paul Smith. Um, of course, he you know he's known for X-Men, um, but like Leave It to Chance and the Golden Age to me are well beyond what he was doing in X-Men, and yet those aren't as widely seen for a later era guy. Um, I always loved the kind of the more illustrative style. Um, some of the painters too like right? um, one that a lot of people don't know is Christopher Muller uh, he did the Iron Empires stuff um, one of them was done at Dark Horse and then one was done by DC's Helix line uh, Sheba's war those are just gorgeous to look at um, he worked a lot in for the role-playing game companies and he's done some work for DC but just those stories themselves are just beautifully Told stories in a painted style, but not kind of that Alex Ross style. It's it's a little more vibrant, um, a little less posed looking. And he had done for Innovation. He did an adaptation of the uh, the Republic serial uh, King of the Rocketmen. Um, that you know they did it to kind of cash in on the Rocketeer movie, uh, but he kind of really gave that a nice life to it, and they kind of. He kind of expanded the story beyond just the serial to give it a little more of a uh, modern storytelling style, so it wasn't just kind of that Saturday matinee cliffhanger resolution cliffhanger kind of thing uh, but he's one I think really could have been huge in comics, but being a painter it's that's a slow process mm. plus I'm sure he get paid better for some of the other work he does no doubt uh, so
0: what creator do you think
1: is overrated? Um, Grant Morrison is one that I've never really warmed up to. I like I like some of his stuff. Um, I like Zenith up to about the, the last book. Then it gets really weird for my sensibilities. Um, I like the the Steed and Peel miniseries he did that uh, Eclipse published with the, uh, the Avengers characters. Uh, the TV Avengers. And I've liked bits and pieces he's done, but Doom Patrol kind of always left me cold. Uh, Animal Man I liked a little better. But the, his more recent era stuff just kind of does nothing for me. And it may just be just kind of my tastes are different than what he's doing. But a lot of his material always came across to me as kind of Alan moore light, um, Which is kind of left-handed kind of thing. But some of the other stuff, it's like I read this in Michael Moorcock. I mean, I, I've it seems like he wears his influences a lot a lot more openly than some people do to where i don't know it just kind of doesn't quite connect with me the way the influences do like i love michael morcock's writing but when i see morrison do it it just seems like less and that's just me i mean i understand a lot of people love his work and i say i like some of it but he's just not one of my favorites
0: Well, it's not just you. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the other episodes I've done. But so far, every single guest I've asked this question to has answered Grant Morrison. So uh, apparently there's a consensus, at least among uh, the members of the Classic Comics Forum who agree to appear on my podcast, that everyone (laughs) thinks that Grant Morrison is overrated.
1: To me, it's kind of like Quentin Tarantino. I like some of his movies, but I think the praise that he gets is way beyond what I see in those movies. It's like, it's an enjoyable movie, but I can pick out where he got this and where he got that. And with Morrison, it's kind of the same way. It's like, it's it's a well-done work, but it's not necessarily something I think is that original. And a lot of it's probably a generational thing. The older you are, the more you've seen what came before, so you can kind of see where they're pulling out these tricks and you're less impressed by it than some of the younger crowd. So that's probably part of it. So Uh, what comic book character do you love? uh, The original Captain Marvel is one. Um, One of the first superhero comics I ever got was one of the the early DC ones. I think it was issue 10 where um, Aunt Minerva is the villain. Just there was a sense of fun to it, and you connect well to it too, as a kid, and as, as you grow older, um, you can kind of see how well it really was done, um, especially those um, the Fawcett stories. The DC ones have their moments, but um, the Fawcett ones have a charm. It's like reading old fairy tales or, or, or classic storybooks. You just you kind of get lost in this little fantasy world and it kind of makes you feel like a kid again for a while. Um, and it kind of holds up, even though it's, it's very dated, it's very simplistic, and all that kind of thing. But it's just, there's something that that shines through of it. And so he's always been a favorite. And that it kind of sets you up for disappointment because I've read most of the attempts to modernize him and most of them all like bits and pieces of it, but it never totally comes together. Like Jerry Ordway, I thought, did probably the best job on it with the, the whole power shazam series and the, the graphic novel um he had a nice balance of trying to do a modern superhero and be faithful to some of the, the stuff that came before but it's a hard one to do so what character do you hate Um uh, that's good. um i've never really been a fan of uh, the punisher is a big one especially as i've gotten older to me it's not a heroic character and yet he's portrayed as being the hero and i read like the mac Boland books when i was in high school and was young and, and just you know in my gun loving days and that kind of stupid thing and they're pulpy adventures and there's s- some good ones and some bad ones uh, but the the punisher comic I, besides being a ripoff of the Boland style, which in itself owes to like my camera and, and things like that, and the spider and the pulps that came before that, that did the same kind of thing, it's just, I guess, part of it is growing up through the earlier Bronze Age of heroes being heroes. And then a guy who's just shooting people with guns just doesn't seem heroic. And the character has always been a little too bloodthirsty for my sensibility. And this is coming from somebody who grew up watching every war movie that came on and loving it, and every James Bond film, and every time somebody was gratuitously shot in a police show like SWAT or something like that from the 70s. just There was just something about him that just said, not hero, to me anyway.
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm not a fan of the Punisher either for similar reasons. I feel like he worked well enough as a as a foil for Spider Man or for other actual heroes. Like he's a good he's a good character for heroes to play off of because of the contrast. But as a solo character, when you give these characters their own books and they become the protagonists, they are suddenly their actions are portrayed kind of as heroic because you're inside their head and Across the board, I I usually end up not liking those. And because... I think he also suffered from becoming so popular. Uh, Yeah. When characters become popular enough that... It's like the tail wagging the dog where their popularity forces the writers to do certain things with them. Like Wolverine is the poster child. Yeah, definitely. Um, So, yeah, I'm not a fan of Punisher or... Wolverine or Lobo, or any of those kind of hyper violent characters that became really popular because they were assholes. So, last question uh, If you could create one dream comic book series, any title, any characters, any creative team, doesn't matter whether they're, the, they're living or dead, what would you want? The one I've kind of talked about with a few people
1: about what I would love to see, and is something that probably will never happen these days. Um, that its best shot would have been like the late 1980s or something like that, is a kind of a maxi-series kind of thing, or even something like a Seven Soldiers kind of mosaic maxi-series with miniseries in, intertwined, um, would be all the, the DC War uh, comics characters taking them from the beginning of the war to the end of the war. So seeing things like the Germans invading and how... Uh, Mademoiselle Marie becomes part of the resistance, and then uh, the Sergeant Rock coming into North Africa, and just taking that on, and Gunner and Sarge from the Losers starting out in the Pacific and ending up part of that unit, and just following those characters through the actual events of the war, and being able to, one, just kind of explore that history, but also being able to use those really great characters that just kind of fell by the wayside as the war comics day ended, and superheroes kind of took over almost everything because um, I kind of grew up with a lot of those um, from reading them from, from older friends and the few that were still on the stands and because I had always loved the like the 60s era action war movies like the guns of Navarone and where Eagles there and stuff like that so I was those comics were always really great but at the same time they were also very humanistic And I would love to see that kind of thing done. It wouldn't be commercial these days, certainly. Um, But at the same time, it's it's like War Comics always had kind of a fandom outside of comic books. You you would run into people, the only thing they ever read were War Comics, or the only thing they ever read were Conan, or or something like that that wasn't superheroes. And I think in the 80s, they really could have done something with that. Um, Or even in the 90s, when uh, Tom Brokaw's The Greatest Generation was getting all that kind of media attention that there could have been an audience for it if they really wanted to do it and do it well
0: well i would have bought it i'm a big fan of the dc war books particularly unknown soldier and the losers those are kind of my two favorites yeah all right well that's the end of my questionnaire so i guess we'll jump right into a first issue special here all Um, right so first issue special First issue of first issue special is dated April 1975, so we're talking. This is the gestation period is right at the end of 1974, and Jerry Conway, in an interview in um, back issue magazine, had a quote where he said that first issue special was a peculiar peculiar book concept based on Carmen Infantino's observation that the first issues of titles often sold better than subsequent issues. Carmen's Brainstorm, a monthly series of nothing but first issues. It sounds like a joke, but he was dead serious. Um, Not only does it sound like a joke, it actually reads kind of like a joke, unfortunately. Uh, The series ran for 13 issues uh, between April 1975, these are cover dates, and April 1976. It was supposed to be a tryout book, nominally, although, as we'll see, pretty much none of the series that tried out in the title actually went on to become ongoing series. And the first issue uh, is particularly interesting to me because it's Atlas uh, by Jack Kirby. This is one of the last new Kirby titles that actually came out while he was at DC. We're going to see some more issues that he put out uh, in first issue special later on. But the other issues of first issue special that Kirby worked on actually came out after he had already left for Marvel.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: so in Atlas, we we meet this character who... I'll just go over the synopsis really shortly. Uh, there's this guy who is incredibly strong. Like, strong enough to theoretically hold the entire world on his shoulders, apparently. And it uh, turns out he's the last survivor of this um, tribe who are bequeathed this giant magic gemstone that gives him powers. After his uh, parents are killed by uh, this uh, mysterious bad guy, he gains uh, this gem and he inherits these superpowers and then he manages to get away and dedicates himself to basically a life of vengeance where he's going to track down this bad guy and get revenge for his family's murder. And at the end of the issue, he comes face-to-face with... Uh, many years later with the bad guy who killed his family. What did you think of this issue? Um, it's it's a little thin in spots. Um, well,
1: it's a lot thin in spots. Um, it's one of those things where I think Kirby was kind of... He had a nice visual idea. Um, he hadn't really kind of fleshed it out. It, do, it does have a feel of kind of, well, here's an idea but I gotta fill my page rate so I'm gonna see where it goes kind of thing um, so it's very very much like he's riffing on an idea but it wasn't a strong idea so he doesn't really do a whole lot with it, it I, in my in my rundowns that I did um, you know, I kind of talked about the parallels with the Conan movie origin which is somewhat taken from the books and Kirby was a big Pulp fan, so I wouldn't be surprised if he had read some of the old Robert E. Howard stories and some of the other guys from Weird Tales. It does have kind of that feel, but very much a kind of mixture of the Pulp fantasy hero and mythology. And so I kind of think that was the gem of the idea, but uh, there's some beautiful pages in it. But it, it's definitely kind of jumps around a bit and kind of it doesn't flow. So you definitely get the feeling it's it's not something he felt really strongly about.
0: I agree. Um I feel like there are a lot of really, you know, fantastic action sequences and like big splash pages and two page spreads. Um but almost too much of that. Like it it's covering up how thin the story is, because when you see Kirby at his best, he can get really dense with some of his material. Yeah. And that is not happening here. There's a very, very thin story. Um, And it's sort of, like, been done to death, really, where, you know, the character's family is killed, and he wants revenge, and he meets up with a bad guy at the end. And, I don't know, I I didn't feel like there was much to this story. And it's interesting you mentioned it didn't feel like, when you're reading it, it doesn't feel like Kirby was that invested in this idea. And I don't think DC was that invested in this idea, either. One thing, we'll get into this at the end of, of our conversation, But one thing I definitely got the impression going through this series is that a lot of these issues to me read like their inventory stories being burnt off. And the way we're really going to see that come into play later is that some of the issues that were originally scheduled to be in this series, such as Cobra, another Jack Kirby issue, were pulled out of the schedule and launched as their own titles. And I get the impression that... um, they were putting the stuff in First Issue Special that they didn't actually have the confidence in to launch as a solo book, as a standalone title right away. Um, anything they had that they thought was good enough to actually be a series, they were just making into a series. And it it really shows in the material, because Atlas, to me, you know, it, it's some slam-bang Kirby action, but there's just kind of nothing to it.
1: Yeah, I would tend to agree with a lot of that. Um, there's some things you can tell are inventory stories. Um, there's a couple that have a bicentennial theme to it. And they just kind of sound like oh, let's knock off something set in Washington, D.C. or something that kind of touches on American history um, like that later uh, Batgirl and Robin story that was used in Batman Family 1. The same kind of thing. They fight Benedict Arnold. And then the Metamorphos story, he meets some French character, and then it revolves around the British invasion of Washington during the War of 1812. And so there's, there, those have definite uh, inventory feels like they were give us some Bicentennial stories that we're going to run over the year, because that'll probably sell, because everybody's big in the Bicentennial. Um, some of them, like Warlord, they, they definitely were going to series, but yeah, like I said, they may have tested the waters a little bit there first. Um, same with the the new gods at the very end, but there there's definitely a feel of some of them. Like Kirby stuff was no doubt. Um, he's he had to produce something like 15 pages a week, which is ungodly. Um, and so he's just churning out material to meet that quote, especially after they started canceling his books. So we got to put it somewhere. So we'll put it here and slap in first issue on it, even though if we look closely, there's a number that says it's issue five, um, may get it to sell better to the collectors, which were starting to become a factor in things. They'd already made Shazam number one a huge seller, and then most of it ended up in comic shops.
0: Yeah, and with Atlas in particular, one thing that struck me when I was reading this, in in almost every, not quite every issue, but almost every issue of First Issue Special, there's like a text page where there's a note from either the editor or the writer or someone just talking about the series, kind of pitching it to the reader in case the actual story doesn't grab them. They've got like, here's why you should buy it. And in this first issue with Atlas, the whole pitch is just about how great Jack Kirby is and how having a new addition to the Kirby uh, lexicon, like the the Kirby um, portfolio is like a big deal because it's the legend Jack Kirby creating it and i felt like that was actually a little disingenuous because Kirby was right at the end of his contract they weren't treating him very well and they were kind of giving him lip service by giving by publishing these these issues and uh-huh. talking him up but they weren't really supporting him and I, and i didn't really feel like we're going to get into this more with some of the later ones uh, particularly for for instance um, Well, the next issue, which we'll get to in a second. (laughs) Some of these stories, I got the impression there's no way in God's green earth that DC ever thought some of these books were going to sell. Well, Um, yeah, I can't believe that easily. And so, I don't know. It's kind of left a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth reading this text thing about how great Jack Kirby is, knowing that he's trying to get out of his contract and he's just churning out this stuff basically to fulfill this this lame duck contract with DC and they like have no intention of giving him the you know any real work and yet at the same time they're kind of talking out the other side of their mouth um, Atlas clearly did not catch on he did later appear many many years later we'll be talking about this quite a bit but uh, in a story by James Robinson who as far as I can tell might have been the only person in the world that read the entire series <laughs> other than the two of us uh, because he really liked to mine these stories for uh, for ideas for his later work in the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah, he definitely has a, uh, he seems to have an
1: attraction for the obscure characters. Um, like in the Golden Age, he used Captain Triumph and you could pull a hundred comics fans and you might find one that had ever heard of that character outside of the use of that series uh, he used madame fatale without ever naming her uh, madame fatal i can't remember which way they actually spelled it uh, that is infamous amongst comics fans who know about the golden age just because it's a guy in drag fighting crooks um uh, but he didn't even name her in the comic. And she's just kind of there as a background character. or uh, That Paul Smith stuck in there for a joke. if you see the uh, uh, was the gambler, I think, or, or one of the other villainous characters, the fiddler, is trying to hit on and not realizing it's a guy in drag. And the others are just watching and trying to hold back the laughter. And so it's like Robinson seems to love that kind of obscure little character and see if he can do something with it, which Starman... Uh, was great for that. He, uh, when he would do some of the times past, there's one that has uh, the Jester, one of the quality comics minor, minor characters. And he actually cobbled together a really good story with that character for just a one-off. And I kind of think that's why he was kind of attracted to the series, because there are all these unused characters, and, and some of them had a an idea there that just either didn't get executed or just uh, was kind of a little too off the wall and he's found like one
0: little nugget he he thought he could use and I would say that's probably going on there well one issue and one concept that even James Robinson couldn't find a nugget of uh, goodness in is issue number two the green team boy millionaires (laughs) Uh, now this is by uh, Joe Simon and Jerry Grandinetti and I want to say right up front Prez is one of my favorite comics. I love Prez. I'm a sucker for anything by Simon and Grandinetti. Even the Green Team, in a way, um, because it's just so god-awfully terrible um, <laughs> that I derive some enjoyment from reading it. Uh, in this book, we get introduced to um, a team of kids who are all rich, and they basically... A whole, it's basically like the TV show Shark Tank, they have people come in and pitch them crazy ideas, and if they like one of the ideas, they'll back it. And in this issue, uh, someone pitches them an idea for an amusement park that will give them like the ultimate experience. And long story short, the bad guy ends up going in the amusement park first, and it's something where only like one person can experience it at a time, and it takes an entire week to take the ride Is that... Intense. It takes a whole week of riding before it's done. So they have to wait it out. And when the guy comes out of the ride at the other end, the week in the amusement park has been too much for him and he's gone gibberingly insane. So the green team is like, well, dodge the boat there. Let's go on to our next mission. There's nothing good about this story, Uh, but there are a couple things that are interesting about it. I know in, in your reviews online, you mentioned the connection to Richie Rich.
1: Yeah. I mean, Joe Simon had worked for Harvey quite a bit, uh, particularly when they were doing their attempt at a hero's revival in the 60s. And so, I mean, he was aware of the kind of sales that they were doing with Richie Red. So, you know, if one rich kid having an adventure is great, let's throw in three or four, uh, once the, um, the one character was Abdul, I think he was, um, the, the shoeshine boy he gets his, you know, million by accident.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Abdul, the shine boy, because let's just say that if this book was coming out now, that, that character would be handled a little bit differently. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. For those who haven't read Green Team, which I'm guessing is everybody, uh, there's three white guys who are all rich, and they basically have um, gotten their money because their parents are rich. And then Abdul is the African American shine boy who shines their shoes and he wants to join the millionaires club. But of course he doesn't have any money until he gets a bank error in his favor, just like he's playing Monopoly and he got a community <laughs> chess card. Only in this case, instead of $10, he got half a million. And over the course of like two panels, he parlays that into a million and a half on the stock market. And then the bank realizes their error, takes the original half a million back, but now he's got a million in profits that he's made in like 10 minutes. And he's able to join the club. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not entirely down with uh, Abdul the Shoeshine Boy. Um, he, he feels... Uh, <laughs> he's not entirely PC, let's put it that way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I brought up a few points in, in my write-up of it. Um, one that... Um, He goes into the building where the Millionaire's Club is, and he's about to go on the elevator, and they tell him, well, you can't take this elevator. You have to go up the service one." It's like, okay, uh, whites only. And then it's like, oh, well, only millionaires can be here. Oh, well, we we recognize you going in and shine somebody's shoes. And then people are kind of laughing at him, but at the same time, they all like him. And it does have the feel of your Ebony Whites and your Whitewash Jones and your other... Um, stereotyped um, characters from the 1940s that were in all those comics that even the creators you love, you look at it and you just cringe. And you understand their products of their time, Um, but at the same time, you're just like, oh, this is just so wrong. And that feel really comes across in that.
0: And, you know, the feel of, of these guys, these issues being out of touch with the times is a recurring theme because through the first, until we get to Warlord in issue eight, almost all of these issues read to me, like the creators, they're old school creators who are just out of touch with what's happening. I mean, with one exception, I love issue four with Lady Cop, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. But a lot of this series, the first the 1st seven issues, it's Kirby, it's Simon, it's Haney, Conniger and Ditko. And it's like all these guys from the '40s and '50s, and it really tell, like it really comes across. Uh, just they, a lot of these issues feel really outdated for even for 1975 when they're coming out. They feel tired. Oh. Uh, there is one element of this story though that feels very 1970s to me. I've got kind of a um, this is something that I always pay special attention to because it's so specific to the '70s and that is the idea of a dystopian amusement park. Yeah, there's so many stories in the 70s and I I I don't know if it was because, you know, Disney World opened in Florida in 1971. I don't know if that spurred it, if it was just like the popularity of Westworld the movie in 73. Uh, I tend to think it's maybe a combination, but for some reason there was something going on culturally in the 70s where people were using amusement parks as some sort of metaphor for the decline of civilization. And in books like this and in Saber, um, which is much more explicit, uh, because it's basically taking place at Disney World, um, you, you would get all these dystopian amusement parks. So that is one element of this issue that I really enjoyed, because as a big fan of amusement parks and Disney parks in particular, I love reading comics where... Uh, they go to an amusement park and everything goes haywire because for some reason amusement parks are a, a sign of uh, impending doom.
1: Um, I think part of that is probably the time frame. Uh, you had, because we had, when I, I grew up near Decatur, Illinois, and we had a little amusement park there in Decatur, but its best days had been like 10 years before I was a kid. And It was getting kind of run down and it closed before I was even in junior high. And I think there's probably a lot of that going across the country. There were like 1940s, 1950s era, maybe even some 1960s era kind of amusement parks and attractions that had kind of fallen on hard times, particularly with the the recession that was going on. So I would be surprised if some of that kind of got filtered into that. And yeah, um, Disney World... Being new, probably put in some people's head, like you say, West World, uh, which I can recall as a kid going to Disney World when it first opened, and it was out in the middle of nowhere back then. It was just kind of like this little oasis in the middle of practically the Everglades. And of course, you know, many years later, went through there. And it's just all this stuff built up around it. But back then, it just kind of was like this weird little amusement kingdom.
0: In, in the middle of
1: nowhere.
0: So, with the Green Team, this is another uh, similar to Atlas. They basically weren't used again. Um, they did crop up eventually in like one story decades later. issue Superman. I think it was Superman. Yeah. M- Might have been action. I think it was Superman. Um, but then they were actually in the new 52. There was a whole new version of the Green Team, a modern sort of, um, you know, occupied DC Comics version. Of of the Green Team, which I, having read the original series, I definitely had no interest in ever looking at the new one. So I have no idea if that was any good or not. But I I did find it to be interesting where they took this sort of nugget of um, the idea of using the the series as actual social commentary and, and tried to do something with it. All right, so let's move on to issue three. Now, with issue three, they did something a little bit different. The first two issues were new concepts. They were bad concepts, but they were new concepts. Whereas in issue three, they brought back an old character who had already had his own book, and that's Metamorpho the Element Man. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is by the original Metamorpho team of Bob Haney and Ramona Frayden. And... I don't have a lot to say about this because I can't stand Metamorpho. I thought this issue sucked. Um, And again, kind of like the first two, you know, both issues one and two felt to me like they were sort of playing out the string, fulfilling contractual obligations to some of their older people, uh, you know, older creators. I felt like this is sort of a nod to Haney because Metamorpho is clearly Haney's. Pet character. He kept trying to get Metamorpho to work. He dragged him out to a whole bunch of issues of World's Finest uh, uh-huh. as a tryout. That didn't work. Brings him back here again, trying to get it to work, and I felt like this is DC's way of just sort of mollifying him, saying, okay, we know you love the character, we value you as a creator. So we're going to let you try Metamorpho again, even though he's a terrible character, the stories are all horrible, the only redeeming quality about them is Ramona Fraden's art, but that is not enough to save what is otherwise just a putrid mess of a comic book. So I don't know if I've made my feelings on this issue clear or not. It, th- real quick, you mentioned the story already. It's basically uh, a ghost, uh-huh. uh, an angry ghost, shows up, and he's angry because um, he died like during the war of 1812, and he had this idea for some sort of super weapon that could have <coughs> defeated the British and every time America's in a war, he reappears to try and convince the current president to use his weapon, and none of them ever listen because they think, they're like, oh, it's a ghost. I'm crazy. I'm certainly not going to do that. Um, and long story short, Metamorpho beats him after a bunch of really dumb things happen. So what do you think of this issue?
1: Um, I'm probably a little more forgiving of it. Um, Metamorpho was one of those books that i like the concept of it and i've read a few stories that i thought were fun in a very simple way um there was some imagination to some of it um uh, but i never read it a long stretch of them so i never had that strong connection to it um it was also one of those characters i would kind of see in the house as when they tried to like the, the world's finest um, one of the covers where he appears as like a door knob that Superman is reaching towards. One one of the World's Finest Dollar Comics. I vividly remember that and house sad when I was a kid. And, and I almost think it was a horror story that right? because you can see the face in the door handle kind of coming out. And so I didn't even know it was Metamorpho. I'd never heard of the character by that point. Um, I had a cousin who actually had this issue, so I read it when it was fairly new, and. It there was some things that kind of interested me just as a history buff, but it's it's a pretty weak story. Particularly reading it as a dull when I wrote my my write up, I I just remember looking at it going yeah I, I remember this being better, but I guess I was just young.
0: I just I dislike intensely all the characters. Um, you know the the love interest I forget what her name is, but the, the um, Sapphire Stag, I believe. yeah. Is just like a stereotypical ditzy moron, and the dialogue is pure, like, even though this is '75, the dialogue is like pure late 60s, um, Teen Titans era Bob Haney dialect. And I just, it just disgusts me. (laughs) I just, (laughs) just don't like this now. Metamorpho. Like the first two issues, this did not lead to anything. In fact, like yeah. all of the issues in this series, it didn't lead to anything. Metamorpho continued to kick around. As a supporting character, Bob Haney continued to try and get him, you know, back. Eventually in the 80s, he became more of a, a recurring character in, in books like um, Justice League Europe and stuff.
1: Yeah.
0: But he never he never got the spotlight that Bob Haney clearly thought he should get. Yeah. When when we were getting ready for this, I thought I had put together a complete run of this series and I realized I was missing this issue. So I I had to buy this issue to complete my <laughs> run. And it is like castor oil. Yeah. Um on the other hand, the next issue, issue four, Lady Cop by Bob Conniger. Yes. And yes. now this is an issue that I really dig. I like this issue a lot. I know you had mentioned in your reviews that one of the the main inspirations for this was the TV show uh, Police Woman.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything definite on that, but I look at it go, it, it had to be. Because um, it came on before this story came out, and it so parallels things, and Police Woman was a big show in the day. Uh, it got a lot of attention, and that's when I started seeing more and more attempts at having a, a police woman character. It, it, you get like the Dirty Harry movie, The Enforcer, with Tyne Daly as his new female partner. You start to see a lot of that. So I can't believe that Robert Kanagher, who never missed a, uh, a trend that he couldn't jump on, passed that up. Um, it, you know, some parts, it feels like it was meant for their romance comics, but um, I, I have a feeling it was more of, okay, this is hot on TV, I can do something with this but we may need to try to sell it to the romance comic audience. And let's get one of those artists in to do it.
0: Yeah, now I, I agree. Like, I'm not that familiar with the TV show, Police Woman, but this reads to me like a TV show. The closest, even though it's a different genre, the, the closest comp to, to me for Lady Cop is Night Nurse, where they, mm-hmm. they both read like you're watching a primetime soap opera. Yeah. Uh, and Lady Cop is more, you know, as the name implies, of a cop show. For those who haven't read Lady Cop, first of all, you're missing out because it's a great comic that everyone should read. Um, but it's basically, there's a, a woman at the beginning of the issue, she's hiding under the bed, and she sees all of her roommates getting murdered. Uh, all of her, the other women that she lives with are all being murdered. She doesn't see anything um, except for the guy's boots. And so she ends up deciding to become a cop herself to help people and also track down the mysterious, you know, uh, boot killer. And throughout the issue, she has a bunch of run-ins with different people. It, it feels very episodic, kind of like, um, again, an episode of a TV show where there'd be an A plot and a B plot and a C plot. And she runs into this girl a wow. couple times who... Um, has been fooling around with her boyfriend and now she's got VD and uh, she has a couple of conference, you know, she's trying to help this girl and, but the girl comes from like a strict religious family and there's a lot of really interesting soap opera drama mixed in with the action of Lady Cop, a lot of like, you know, chauvinistic men trying to, you know beat up lady yeah. cop or whatever and then she shows them the error of their ways she's not just a lady she's also a cop um, yeah uh,
1: they're very much like that and uh, like the police woman TV series um, she usually went undercover as stewardesses cocktail waitresses prostitutes anything that could have her dressed in a sexy outfit for you know 1970s ideas and this kind of reads similar to some of the elements. And what's hilarious, though, is at the same time, they're trying to do a PSA about VD in the middle of the plot, and yet they can never call it that because it's a Comics Code book. So it's like this weird, well, let's do a social message, oh, but we can't actually name what we're talking about.
0: There's a bit of um, cognitive dissonance for me reading Lady Cop compared to the absolute cod swaddle that conniger was doing in Wonder Woman. Um, oh yeah. He, he I'm I'm actually a pretty big fan of Conniger overall. Like I like his war books. Um, I really liked Lady Cop. I like Ragman. Um, is really an interesting series. But it's like everything good he ever did is weighed in the balance against his horrible Wonder Woman stories, and. I just find it a little bit weird that he has this pretty progressive treatment of the female protagonist in Lady Cop compared Uh to his portrayal of Wonder Woman for all those years. So Lady Cop, unfortunately, again, did not get picked up as a series. She, unlike some of these other characters, though, she did eventually reappear. It wasn't until the 2000s, but she became a a recurring character in the all-new Adam with the all-new Adam, Ryan Choi. Uh And... They also had a lady cop shout out in um, season four of the arrow where there's a group of crooked police officers who are running some sort of crime ring and the leader of them was lady cop. Uh, Uh Now this is a situation where I think it was just sort of an internal joke. They were just using the name of the character. It's definitely not lady cop because of course she's a bad guy in that episode. Of Arrow, but I thought it was kind of a funny shout out.
1: Yeah, I, Arrow's done a lot of that kind of thing. with, Like, he had Kate Spencer as a DA in there, but she doesn't become Manhunter. And they've had Mark Shaw, but it's, he's not Manhunter. I, I think it's a lot of Jeff Johns feeding them, hey, we got this
0: character name, throw it out. Speaking of Manhunter, that's a great segue into issue <laughs> number five Manhunter. This is. Another Kirby book. But by the time this came out, Kirby was already working at Marvel.
1: Yeah.
0: And I find this interesting because, I've mentioned this earlier, but Cobra is another Kirby book that was... Cobra was scheduled for three different times to appear as an issue of First Issue Special. And they eventually decided, someone at DC decided, that the concept of the book was so good that it was worth... um, Publish, first of all, it was worth publishing as a, a standalone series without getting a tryout. But secondly, since Kirby had already left, they decided to go ahead and have other people work on the book and doctor it up so that uh, it would fall more in line with, you know, whatever, what DC is doing. But also so, you know, they'd have like a consistency for the next issues since Kirby had already left. Mm-hmm. The fact that they didn't do that with Manhunter makes me feel like they had no, you know, they didn't think that this was a good enough series because if since Kirby's already left, they're going to have a problem if this issue sells really well, they, they can't do an an ongoing Manhunter series with this material because Kirby's not around to write or draw it. No, and I feel like if if they had faith in the material, they would have given it the Cobra treatment and had it, had it reworked into something that they thought they could perpetuate. Um, and the fact that they didn't tells me that they didn't have a lot of faith in material, which is too bad, because of the three Kirby issues in First Issue Special, this is by far the best. <coughs> uh, I thought that the premise was, was fantastic. Um, I thought the actual story wasn't that great. It suffered a little bit like like Atlas. It felt like... Um, there wasn't as much material as there should have been, but this was a much richer idea, in my opinion, than Atlas was.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it's Kirby was returning to a character he did in the 40s, and he ignored the, uh, or probably wasn't even aware of, the Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson one, because it kind of hints that the character who you see at the beginning of the book who takes on the chopper, the guy with the big... Uh, Mardi Gras head, um, is supposed to be Paul Kirk. And, of course, that character's dead in the Simons series. So, it definitely feels like they were kind of like, well, why don't you look at some of the stuff you used to do way back when you worked first before. Manhunter's one, Sandman's another one that got brought back. And he had an idea of somewhere to go with it um, with the whole... Cult of the Manhunters kind of thing as kind of Knights Templars, and it's actually a pretty cool idea, and it kind of fits in the era because that's you got Robert Anton Wilson and his whole Illuminatus trilogy, and and people talking about secret conspiracies with the Nixon administration and, and all that kind of stuff. So I mean, it definitely has the zeitgeist of the era, and it's got a kind of a cool idea that uh, I think if somebody had come over now it would have been Azrael before Azrael, kind of thing. Because um, people seem to eat up that kind of secret order, manipulating history kind of thing.
0: Yeah, for those who haven't read it, this issue of Manhunter has basically, it positions the Manhunters as this secret group of like, I don't want to say ninjas, but these like secret warriors who by evil and um, they're like this cult and they have special powers but there's none of them left. There's only like there's like a leader guy and then there's one old manhunter who's the only agent left and he realizes he's too old to keep doing this. What are they going to do? And right then um, this new guy who's like a district attorney who's upset because he's not making a difference legally um, stumbles basically by accident uh, or by fate, I guess, into this Manhunter conspiracy, and he's sort of, he's initiated into the Manhunters, goes on a mission, and at the end it's like oh, this guy might become, you know the Manhunter legacy might continue on. I, there, As you mentioned there's, there's really a, a lot of potential for a, a rich backstory here. Uh, there's a lot of potential mythology
1: mm. in
0: this series and not in like the sense of Jack Kirby Atlas style mythology, but there's a lot of stuff they could do with this concept. I thought it was a really interesting concept. I felt like this is something where if they really, like I said, if they wanted this to succeed, they would have been better off reworking aspects of it because some of it goes so fast paced. The dialogue becomes really clunky and expository in places. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's just, it's a great concept that I didn't think was executed very well, and it's like in terms of Kirby's execution, it's not his best. I felt like he came up with a really good idea and then sort of dashed it out to because he had a car waiting to drive him to Marvel.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'd say to a certain degree, um, uh, a lot of a lot of the stuff he was doing was based on suggestions from Carmen Infantino, um, like Cobra was. He said, "Well, let's do something like the Corsican Brothers." So they cobbled some of that. I I have a feeling that Carmine and Mark Evaniers talked about that. Uh, Carmine suggested some of you re- returning to some of the old characters he had done, and Kirby. He said that was Kirby ne- never liked doing that. He he never liked going back on old work. Is more he wanted to do something new. And I kind of get the feeling that some of the things you had been wanting to do was like OMAC kind of filtered into it too um, and yeah I think he had he definitely had an idea or he was using ideas that he didn't get a chance to use elsewhere and kind of mixed them into the story but again yeah it's, it's probably one of those that he kind of figured well I'll get it started and somebody else can take over and I can go on to something else even if it wasn't that well I'm going to do this until I, my contract's
0: up kind of thing because a lot
1: of what he was doing was supposed to be, I'll set this up and you
0: guys run with it. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Infantino because, as I mentioned, a lot of these early issues in particular feel really out of touch. And while some of that blame goes to Kirby and Simon uh, and the other, you know, Haney and, and Conninger and whatever, I think a lot of it does have to lie with Infantino, who at this point really felt out of touch. This is just before he was unceremoniously dumped in favor of Jeanette Kahn. And I think a lot of the failure of not just the series as a whole, but the individual issues can be chalked up to Infantino not really being in touch with what was happening in the market and what fans wanted anymore.
1: Uh, I definitely think there's that. And a lot of the editors, the entrenched editors of that period, the guys who had been in positions since the Silver Age and were kind of Carmine's guys, um, a lot of those guys were not fans of Kirby and kind of sabotaged him, at least according to some of the stuff Mark Vaniers written, um, that there were a lot of people who were just bad-mouthing behind his back, and yet they're hiring him because Marvel was kicking them seven ways to Sunday. And Carmine, I kind of got the feeling that he was kind of like trying to play both sides, it's like, well, we can use his name, but he's not good enough for us, so we're not gonna like really go out of our way to push this as well, as hard as we should. But yet, we'll, you know, here's another Bob Haney story, and I, I got a soft spot for Bob Haney. I like a lot of things that he wrote, but he was very hit in this, and more often missed than hit. But um, so it's like, especially in the later area, it's just like, oh well, these are my old buddies. I'm gonna give, I'm gonna throw them a bone here and there. And I kind of think that's why he ended up getting removed because finally they're just, the writing was in the, the balance sheet said it just wasn't working under him.
0: Now this Manhunter once again not picked up. This concept was pretty much completely dropped. Steve Englehart ended up taking some aspects of it and reworking that into the idea that the Manhunters were robots. And that eventually led to the Millennium crossover over a decade later. Yeah. And I, you know, the less said about that, the better, in my opinion. So now we come to issue six. So issue six is interesting for a few reasons, and one of those reasons is that it's just like batshit crazy. It's the dingbats of Danger Street. <laughs> um, ding. This is this issue is interesting to me partially because it really feels like, boy, they're just burning off this stuff. They just gotta get rid yeah. of it. Uh, there's there's no possible way that anybody, even Jack Kirby, actually thought that a this sort of uh, boy gang book would be selling in 1975. Uh, I'm not sure that Dingbat's of Danger Street would have been popular if it had come out in 1945, which is which is what it feels like. Uh, um, and again, I really get the f- sense that DC had no confidence that this would sell either. I don't think they ever thought for a second that people would buy Dingbats at Danger Street. And one of the reasons I think we see that is because, as I mentioned earlier, Cobra had been scheduled three different times to appear in first issue special. I don't know for sure that issue six was one of those, but I do know from reading online and doing a little research that this was not supposed to be the original issue six. Whether Cobra was... One of the previous versions of issue six, or not, I'm not sure, but the Batgirl and Robin story that eventually became Batman Family number one was originally supposed to be first issue special number six. They took that and decided to use it as the foundation for the new Batman Family series and replaced it with Ding Bats at Danger Street. And again, this is one of the reasons why I feel like first issue special. It's masquerading as a tryout series, but they're not really expecting any of these books to succeed because if they really wanted to try out a concept, Batgirl and Robin is just a vastly superior and stronger series to try out than Dingbats of Danger Street.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, In some ways, I suspect it had to do with them deciding, well, we can use this for another Batman book. We know those will sell to at least this certain level, and hey, it's going to be a new one, so that's probably going to work better if we do it this way. Um, the The whole the Dean Bass thing, um, that, that's definitely Kirby kind of filling out his thing by just kind of, well, I've got some Newsboy Legion stuff I didn't get to finish up in Jimmy Olsen, so I'm just going to kind of throw it in here as a different kid gang. That was my interpretation of it, because it just kind of felt like, well, it's the Newsboys without Jimmy Olsen doing the kind of stuff that they used to do in the 40s without the Guardian around, which uh, it's definitely got a a goofy visual kind of charm to it, but that's about all I can can say for it story-wise. It's just really bizarre.
0: Yeah, it it very much is a a Newsboy Legion story. There's even a cop character who fills the role of the Guardian, and when you get to the Uh end of this issue, the Dingbats of Danger Street don't do anything. Like, the last six pages is all this cop capturing the bad guys. Um, They have almost nothing to do with the story, really, except for the craziest, the the weirdest character in the series, non-fat, which is this skinny dude who wears a hat over his face and carries a giant hot dog with him everywhere, accidentally gets kidnapped by two wannabe supervillains, and the dingbats are trying to rescue him. I thought this... I, I'm a big fan of this issue, actually. I think it's so ridiculous. Uh, and Kirby's action is just like fantastically over-the-top. Um, some of his most over-the-top action is just like... The designs of some of these characters is just... Yeah, bizarre. It's just weird. Yeah, the villains
1: especially, they're way goofier than anything he had ever done.
0: Yeah, and I you know what? This <clears throat> this seems like a small thing, but the goofiest thing about the villain, there's a guy who who wears like a red jumpsuit and he's a jumping guy. That's his power, he can jump. And the goofiest thing about his design isn't any of that. It's that he has a big mustache. Yes. And it looks so wrong where he's got like a Captain America-style cowl, but with his big mustache sort of jutting out from underneath the part going over his lip. It's hilarious. Um, yeah, and the mustache
1: looks very Stan Lee-ish too.
0: Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't, you know, have bring back Funky Flashman and House Roy. Yeah. Um, uh. So yeah, there's there's just an, I feel like there's no way they ever thought this would sell, and which for me as a, this is supposed to be a tryout book, but it really feels to me like a, they're burning off inventory stories, and they other than Lady Cops, strangely enough, I don't feel like any of these had any chance of selling. No, I
1: mean the the Dingbats to me kind of feels like I mean I could almost picture Kirby giggling as he's writing it because it's just him going I'm just going to go nuts with this one and just getting more and more absurd as he went Um, and one of the the strengths of it is that Kirby was really good at visual humor Um, I can only imagine if he had had the kind of writer working with him to do something like Mad to work with those guys what he would have been doing in there if he had worked for EC. And that's one of the saving graces of it for me. It's just that that physical comedy that he puts in it that he used to have with Ben Grimm in the Fantastic Four or the Yancey Street Gang or whatever would show up. Uh, it's It's got that kind of the same chaos going on, but otherwise...
0: You know, it's interesting to contrast Dingbat's a Danger Street with the other <laughs> books in here, particularly Atlas, uh, because and even Manhunter to a degree where those are issues that where they had a really interesting central concept, particularly Manhunter, but they weren't executed particularly well. Mm -hmm. Dingbats of Danger Street is the opposite to me. It's a totally terrible concept, but Kirby executes it wonderfully. Like you can tell he just, he loves this sort of thing. I mean, Kirby fans all know that he loves this sort of um, boy gang stuff. Uh, And you can tell, like, he's enjoying himself, he's enjoying the characters, he just loves doing this sort of thing. It feels like a kind of book that he did for himself. Uh, He was like, well, I have to do X number of pages, they're not giving me any real assignments, I'm just playing out the string, so I might as well just do something that I enjoy doing, and who cares if it ever works. Yeah, I think that's
1: exactly it, because that's his childhood. Um, If you read the, the autobiography piece that he did, Streetwise... That was his childhood. It was neighborhood gang, you know, running through the neighborhood, causing chaos, fighting with kids from the next neighborhood with their rooftop wars and things like that. And those are, that's what you find in those stories and these weird characters from the neighborhood. So I think it really, it's just him reliving his childhood in an exaggerated fashion.
0: Yeah. Now the Dingbats of Danger Street, like some of these other characters, never appeared again, except... They were eventually brought back in the same issue, um, the same story that brought back the Green Team. I think was it was it Carl Kessel who did those stories yeah, yeah. in Superman.
1: Yeah, he definitely had a soft spot for the the Kirby Kid gang stuff. And I would have loved to see him do a miniseries of it because I enjoyed the, his use of those kind of characters in the Superman books uh, more so than I was enjoying a lot of the other the kind of more A-plots in uh, some of the Superman books after a while. I think he kind of got the kind of goofy aspect with it and just decided, let's just have fun with it. And comics were so serious at that point that it kind of stood out that he brought in some of the goofier stuff. And it just kind of took off some of that that hard edge that so many 90s comics have,
0: at least for me. Now, we move on to issue seven, which has The Creeper. And this is this is the first of these issues where I felt like DC actually thought they might have something because oh. unlike some of these other ones and more like they did with Cobra, they took this story by Steve Ditko who plotted and drew it, but they gave the scripting duties to Michael Fleischer to try and make it a little bit more palatable for modern audiences. And, um, I don't feel like this team this this meshed at all. Like Fleischer's writing yeah. and and Ditko's story just Aww. didn't work for me. What did you think of this issue?
1: Um, nah, it it definitely does it. and it, it, at times it reads like Fleischer is making fun of Ditko's art. Um, he had when he's trying to pick up his henchmen in a, a kind of a gangland bar. Um, they're kind of laughing at him, and of course you could blame him. The guy. As I said in my write-up, he looks like somebody from a third-rate Lucha Libre promotion um, who based based his costume on Marvin from the original Super Friends cartoons because it's got that same kind of color scheme and logo.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed that scene where the the henchmen are just laughing at him because he looks so stupid. But the joke is actually on the creeper because even though this is a ridiculously lame bad guy, he thrashes the Creeper, not once, not twice, but three times in this book. Yeah. And the only reason the Creeper ends up winning at the end is because he's got this healing factor. And so even though he like, gets knocked off a building at one point and is totally wrecked by the bad guy, he just keeps coming back. And, and uh, you know it never struck me until just now, but visually and power-wise, the Creeper had to be the inspiration for Mark Grunewald's Madcap. Um, because it's the exact same character I remember when he madcap showed up in Captain America later. That was the only he didn't have any powers other than the fact that he couldn't die. so he kept getting his butt kicked, but he just returned. Uh, and that's basically the creeper. like he he stinks at everything. He's terrible. Yep. Uh, so it was kind of funny to watch this wannabe superhero just like jump into action and in two panels get knocked off a building to his death. <laughs> Um, but there's there's kind of no there there with the Creeper. Like, no. there's no substance to the, to the... Like, I don't understand what the character point of the character is. I feel like, um, yeah, he has a secret identity, but there's no actual character. There's no depth to the character. And even though there's a lot of, like, fun little things in the book, there's just no center to the book.
1: Yeah, I always kind of got the impression that Creeper... Um for Ditko, it was more about Jack Ryder, the alter ego, than it was about the creeper, the hero. It was Ryder his writer doing his TV features and it, him being a mouthpiece for Ditko's worldviews. And the creeper was more of kind of like, well, I'll take my madmen from the old Blue Be- Charlton Blue Beetle comics and just kind of make one of them into a hero for something to play around with visually. And every time he tried to do it as a book, he was always with a writer who would just sit there and go, "What the heck do I do with this?" And Fleischer, Fleischer wrote some great, horrific stuff with "The Wrath of the Specter with Jim Aparo, and those were two guys who were in sync. But Fleischer and, and Ditko, it just that really was a train wreck. i probably not as bad as Steve Skeet said. And Dicko, who are two guys who are really polar opposites
0: like all the other books in this series this ended up going nowhere the creeper was relegated back to doing more cameos um and really has never progressed like the creeper is interesting to me because i have in my head that he's like a, a fairly important character but he's really not Um, I think the only thing that keeps the Creeper in anyone's mind is the fact that Ditko created
1: That, and he... Every time he's been used and it's been memorable, it's been with the Joker. as because they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, There was an issue of the Joker standalone comic that they had in the 70s with him. that, That got reprinted in The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told. And it's a really good one where he runs up against the Joker. And then they... They kind of use that in the, the New Adventures of Batman iteration of the animated series. And it's it works well in that context, and not much otherwise. At least um, it doesn't seem to commercially...
0: That brings us to the end of part one of our conversation about First Issue Special. Tune in next time as we discuss the infamous issue eight, the first appearance of Warlord, as well as the rest of the mess in First Issue Special. As always, visit us online at classiccomics.org to join the conversation, and I hope you enjoyed this episode.